right, everybody, let's fire up the engines. It's podcast time. Uh, welcome to the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast. I have been told this is episode 20. I have a lot of people out there now who remind me what episode it is because I can't ever seem to remember. So thank you all for that. It's the Ketogenic Bodybuilding Podcast, and I am your humble host, Rob Goodwin. And hey, guys, it is just me today. All by myself, um, in my gym office, it's something like shit, I don't know, look at my, it is precisely 9.19 a.m. on Wednesday, and uh, it's an intimate little podcast today, just me, no co-hosts, and uh, I'm going to do a Q&A podcast today. So uh, what I did is actually what I generally always do, in fact, oftentimes I just get the questions thrown at me by Jason, who's, you know, typically co-hosting with me and he'll be back by the way. Um, but today what I did is I just randomly, uh, selected, gosh, I don't know how many questions do I have here. I just got a page worth of questions that I literally randomly selected off of the Facebook posts that I put in the ketogenic bodybuilding Facebook group, as well as Instagram and, uh, as well as some, uh, DMS that were sent to me directly with questions from uh, others out there. So thank you for the questions. Before we get down to it, remember, please, please help me get those algorithms flowing out there. If you like what I do, if you like what we do, if you like the direction this is going and you wanna spread this with others and help the fight, help the cause, please follow my Instagram at the real Rob Goodwin, please. I would really, really appreciate that. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel that I'm actually getting cranked back up again and starting to add more to. And uh, you'll find that at YouTube uh, slash ketogenic bodybuilding. I'd appreciate a subscribe on that as well to help uh, grow that channel. And uh, everything that I do is located simply at robgoodwin.com, the home of ketogenic bodybuilding. There you will find all links to all the bullshit as well as information about personal coaching. That's what I do. I coach people. I help people through the process. And there'll be a lot of talk about that today regarding a lot of these questions that I've only glanced at literally 10 minutes before I turned on the mic today. So, And I can see already a theme developing. And I think it's something that I needed to get off my chest anyway. Uh, and it's only going to help those out there who are looking to embark on a serious goal, whether it be a physique competition, um, whether it be a specific physique goal that you have in mind for a particular event coming up or time of year or a photo shoot or, you know, those of you out there who have, you know, kind of got it in your head that it's time to make a serious commitment to achieving the best that you can achieve in developing your most badass extreme physique. And that's what we do. And that's what we talk about because ketogenic bodybuilding, as you know, or if you're a first timer here, you should know that it is a hybrid approach of traditional, hardcore, old school, ass kicking bodybuilding with a newer, more low carb, ketogenic, primal, nutritional, ancestral approach. And I've talked about this many times. You can go back to some uh, older episodes of the podcast where I talk about my, you know, my story and how I transitioned out of the typical super high carb, typical, you know, bodybuilding 90s diet and uh, subtracted a lot of those carbohydrates out of the equation, tweaked it and turned the uh, turned the knobs and, you know, cranked the levers and found the right 
you know, formula for me, and it's also been uh, a miracle uh, for a lot of clients out there that don't do well ingesting tons and tons of carbs. And uh, so we found a nice hybrid approach, and that's what we talk about here, and that, that's kind of our mission. Um, you'll also, you know, another reminder is that we don't demonize carbohydrates. We are not the keto zealots out there that preach, you know, one size fits all, my way or the highway, kind of a bullshit philosophy of carbohydrates are the enemy. Carbohydrates are the enemy is a phrase that is dictated by the uninformed and the uneducated. Carbohydrates, as you know, are simply an energy source. Now they can wreak havoc in many different ways. That's another podcast and another story. And it's been discussed in the past, but you do not need a constant influx of high carbohydrates in order to gain lean tissue. Uh, it certainly helps in the reduction of stored body fat. And uh, even, you know, and I think I've mentioned this before, and it kind of popped up the other day when I stumbled on, to, I was scrolling through all of my downloaded, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've never listened to my own, <laughs> so I hope it turns out okay. I've listened to, uh, I was scrolling through all my old podcasts, and I remember listening to a podcast, and uh, it, was, it was a bodybuilding podcast. And um, the two guests that were on there, one was the late legend coach, John Meadows, who recently passed away. Uh, rest in peace, Coach Meadows. And um, I believe it was... Uh, uh, I forget the other coach. It was, it's a guy that I really like and he's a freaking PhD. The, the guys know, the guys know just typical meathead. And one of the questions that they were both asked, and I, I love this, this is always stuck in my head is, uh, of the, of the dozens of questions that these two super expert coaches were asked. One of them was, what is the one thing now that you've learned over your career that you you know, learned later in your coaching career, both of them said nearly at the same time, the importance of the role of carbohydrate. And even, uh, you know, recently coach John Meadows, again, legendary coach trained, you know, hundreds of Olympia and top, uh, amateur athletes, um, was even a football coach. I mean, the guy was kind of involved in everything, you know, he even, would put the bulk of the carbohydrates with his clients around workouts and would even do structured refeeds and cheat meals. Sound familiar? Um, and the other coach that I can't remember his name, who is also, and I apologize because he's a phenomenal legend coach, uh, said the exact same thing. He echoed the same sentiment. And um, I have determined this and discovered this myself. Uh, the fact that, you know, if you use carbohydrates as a specific tool at the right time, in the right amounts, in the right place, in the right frequency, you can reap all the benefits from carbohydrates without all the detrimental side effects that they can often bring. And for me, and I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to go off on too deep of a you know tangent here, but uh, when I made the switch over many, many years ago, it was because I was suffering from some pretty serious inflammatory issues. Now there are certain people out there in the fitness world that say that is horseshit. It's not horseshit. It's a real thing. And I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of real people echo the same sentiment back to me. And think about carbohydrate that I've never really touched on. It needs to be brought up again. And I want to do an entire episode strictly on carbohydrates, sort of myths and facts about carbohydrates. And the other one is, is it's a severe trigger food and uh, it's a trigger food for many people. And you know, we all know this. If you have, you know, processed carbohydrates uh, sitting out there, 
you can continue to eat them and eat them and eat them. Even when you're no longer hungry, they can they contribute. They continue to trigger the uh, the need and the desire to want more, and you end up, you know, on that, you know, insulin roller coaster. Uh, whereas, you know, if you eat a nice ribeye steak, you know, rarely uh, you're going to say, "Hey, great ribeye, give me another one." You know, so. Uh, you know, carbohydrates can be a severe trigger food in overeating. And we know that it's not just about hormones. It's about energy balance. It's about thermodynamics. It's about consuming less than you take in in order to lose body fat. But you also have to take in the right nutrient partitioning, bring in the right amount of nutrients to preserve lean muscle mass, to give yourself the necessary energy that you need to function right, uh, and, and so on and so on and so forth. So... Once again, uh, it's just a little reminder because I see a theme in some of these questions today. And I, I'd say the overriding huge theme about today's Q&A podcast in general, and when I kind of ponder on it, um, I believe that it uh, probably would encompass just about any podcast that I do, and that is repetition and consistency. Bodybuilding, and when I say bodybuilding, I don't mean Mr. Olympia. You know, I mean, anybody, once again, that lifts weights, does their cardio and eats in a manner to build their best physique with the genetics that they have, then you're a bodybuilder. Now, there are bodybuilders. That's the majority of the people that I coach and of the 130 clients that I have you know, only 1% of those actually compete on stage because those are competitive bodybuilders. So when I say bodybuilder, you may shake your head, oh, I'm not, I'm not a bodybuilder. Well, y yeah, you are a bodybuilder. You just may not be a competitive bodybuilder. I was a bodybuilder from the time I was in my early 20s when I got started in this business, all the way up to when I was 46, when I finally got on stage for the first time. That's when I went from being a bodybuilder to a competitive bodybuilder. And there is a difference because, you know, if you are going to the gym and eating in a manner to build and preserve lean muscle and burn body fat and doing your cardio and trying to get ample recovery and sleep and really focusing on your supplementation and all the things that you need to be the best that you can possibly be, then you are building your body and henceforth you are a bodybuilder. Thank you. So don't tell me that you're not. Okay. All right. So let's get into this. So we've got questions and you're going to see the consistency theme rear its head. And I might, uh, I might even get rid of a few aggravations that I've built up. You know, it's the end of summer. Hey, it's just you and me today, guys. We can, we can get intimate, right? We can share our thoughts and feelings and maybe even celebrate the moments of our lives over a cup of coffee. So, um, I, uh, you know, it's the end of summer. We're tired of the heat, sweat, and humidity. Most of us anyway. I am. We're ready for fall. We're ready for the holidays. Ready for cooler weather. I'm ready for all that crap. I'm an outdoorsy kind of a guy. I like being outside. I like being in the woods. I like fire pits and, you know, all that kind of crap. So I'm really looking forward to it. So I start to get a little down at the end of summer. And, uh, and just like I get down at the end of winter when I've had enough of that bullshit and I'm ready for some sunlight on my face again. But I love the fall season. I'm looking forward to that. So I think everybody, and, and I notice it, people start to get a little edgy and a little irritable this time of year. And if you're in some sort of a contest prep or some sort of a, a goal prep, then uh, that can certainly amplify that, as we all know, and it can to make you make some poor decisions. Um, 
So uh, you may see me go off on a few tangents here about some frustrations with decisions that people make. And usually it's based on them straying away from repetition and consistency, you know, because we know motivation is bullshit. Dedication is everything. There's going to be periods of time where you lose your motivation and that's fine. But as long as you stay dedicated for the most part to the goal or the task at hand, then you're going to be okay and you can rebuild that motivation and you can regain that fire and it, and it does move in cycles and you just have to accept that. So, so anyway, let's get right down to it. The very first question that I have, and again, these were chosen at random. This one was DM'd to me. And the question is this, say he says, you speak about your 24 week plan in a recent YouTube video, which I did the most recent YouTube video as of the time of this recording is me speaking about how I periodize a basically the the la the final six months of any prep leading into a hard cut and how I break it down by the weeks out. And it usually begins at 24 weeks out. So it says you speak about your 24 week plan in a recent YouTube video. And uh, uh, also, I believe in an older podcast. I've been following this and am down to eight weeks out. I'm seeing massive improvements since I began 24 weeks out following your plan and advice. What changes should I make at eight weeks out? Well, let me first begin by saying, I don't know. I'm not your actual coach. I truly appreciate that you've followed my stuff. You've listened to the podcast. You've watched the videos. You've read this. You've done that. And you have made massive changes. You set a goal. Uh, I assume it's to go on stage or do a show and that you've gotten, in your words, massive improvements since you began 24 weeks out following my, my protocol, the way I do that. And what changes should you make eight weeks out? Well, first of all, if you're making massive improvements and you're staying consistent and you're seeing the body fat reduce, you're seeing the muscle start to you know, reveal itself through the reduction of body fat. And once the body fat goes away, you obviously can see the hard work that you've been working for by the appearance of that muscle that's been buried under the layers of body fat. So um, if you feel like you're on point and you're eight weeks out and you're seeing you know, some good abdominal definition, you're seeing more striations in the muscle, you're seeing more vascularity improve. I mean, overall, you can start to, you're now seeing the look of a potential physique competitor standing before you in the mirror, then you're on the right track. Now, unfortunately, because I don't work with you and I'm not seeing regularly updated photographs and I'm not, you know, interacting with you, you know, about your program, about what you're doing, then I can't give you any specifics because I just don't know. But what I can say is this, and it's something that I want everybody to, to sort of, you know, listen to and, and ponder on, and that is bodybuilding. Notice that I didn't say competitive bodybuilding. Competitive bodybuilding is included in this, but bodybuilding as a whole is lonely. It is a lonely endeavor. What do I mean exactly? I think you already know. You're not always going to get tons of support from family and friends, coworkers, people you associate with. They're going to think you're a freak. They're going to think you're crazy. They're going to persecute you for not eating the shit at the dinner party. They're going to persecute you for not eating the crap at lunch at the office. They're going to try to bring you down to their level. And what that is, is it's a defense mechanism to make them feel better about their own inadequacies and their lack of dedication to a goal. 
by bringing you back down to their level to help justify their laziness. These things happen every day. I've always said, be the freak in the room. Continue to be the freak in the room. And being the freak in the room is a long, lonely road. Bodybuilding at its heart and soul is a solo sport. It's an individual activity. You know, for all the times that my workout partners are pushing me in the gym, for all the times that my wife is supporting me, there are countless hours of just lonely moments where I'm just within myself and I have to keep talking myself off the ledge, how difficult that it can be and how isolating it can be. And I never want to push away family. I never want to, to alienate myself completely into a cave away from the world. But at times it takes that, you know, there are times when I'm literally going to bed at seven 30 at night, eight o'clock at night, because I have to get up so early because I have so many things to accomplish work and all the things that go in it, taking care of clients. But then I have to worry about my own goals and my own pursuits because I know my own goals and my own pursuits make me better at what I do to make a living. And I know that sometimes I have to take myself into a lonely, dark place. But the point I'm trying to make at is it's still all about consistency. So back to this question about eight weeks out, I have had clients be six weeks out, 30 days out, 45 days out, 12 weeks out, 10 weeks out, whatever. And literally be frustrated because I'm not changing something. You know, they get to a point where they've been depleting, they've been cutting, they're, they're tired of it. We all get to that point. It gets monotonous. It, it's suffering. It's hard work. You know, it's repetitive and it's day in and day out. And it's literally every hour of the day, every minute of the day, everything that you do, you put into that goal. It's not like another sport where you, you go to practice or you go play the game and then when the game is over or the practice is over, you basically go back to a normal life. Bodybuilding pursuits, pursuing these goals is lonely and it takes massive consistency and consistency gets boring. So just because your coach isn't changing something at eight weeks out doesn't mean something needs to be changed. My clients, you know, the ones that you see in the Facebook group or maybe on Instagram that are banging, smoking, shredded badasses. And you're saying, holy shit, look at the transformation this person is making. Look at the difference. Look at the changes. I'm going to tell you right now, and I swear to God, these people are the ones that are the quietest and most consistent, but ask the most questions and then just go about their damn business. It can be as simple as, you know, I feel like I've stalled because everybody feels like they stall eight weeks out, six weeks out. 30 days out. It's okay. We all do. Body fat reduction is not linear. It doesn't go from point A high on the graph and arc straight down in, in, in that manner. It's a pound here and then nothing. And then it's another pound here and then nothing. So it's about calculating the prep and putting in the work and staying consistent. And then at the end you can get lazy you start listening to the voices out there, other people, other coaches, YouTube videos. Oh, you need more carbs. You need more calories. Bullshit. 
Think about what got you here in the first place. Think of the faith and the trust that you put into the process in the first place. I promise you when an adjustment needs to be made, I will make it. And there are times when a client will, will message me and give me some very revealing information about how they feel about, you know, the progress or maybe how it's starting to become limiting or whatever. And then I will ponder that, compile the information, and between the two of us, we will make some subtle changes. But too deep of a change is going to bring detrimental results. The body doesn't like big, hard changes. It likes that consistency. The, it's, your body is gonna react best to eating the same six or seven foods every day. The body is going to react best by you know, doing the same style of training, just keeping the intensity high. Your body is going to react best to doing that consistent cardio that you've been doing four or five days a week. You don't change it. You keep going. The best in the world, the professional physique competitors in every division are consistent and methodical. They carry on and it gets lonely and it gets boring and it gets repetitive, but that's the way it works. And then we just keep meticulously peeling it down, peeling it down, peeling it down until we get to a certain point where I'll say, okay, we're a week out, we're two weeks out. Now let's make some changes to blow that shit back up in all the right ways to make your skin look like fucking saran wrap round around, wrapped around those sexy ass muscles and let's bring it out and show it to the world. So just because you may be a month out or six weeks out or eight weeks out and nothing has changed recently, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. In fact, it's quite the opposite. That means you're doing everything right. Some of my greatest success stories were people where I will have literally five word messages back and forth. Should I do this? No. Okay, cool. How am I doing? You're doing fucking great. Keep it up. Keep your foot on the gas. Okay. They may get a, 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 a message out of nowhere, or I may say, I've changed your macro slightly. It's subtle, but I think it was needed. And their reply, got it. And then it all comes together. If you're fucking bored, tough shit. Okay? Suck it up, buttercup. I don't care if you're bored or you want carbs or whatever it is, or somebody said, oh, you need this or you need that. If it's been working for you all this time and you've been making transformations, the grass is not always greener on the other side. I mean, I don't care if somebody makes a change. That's between them. I don't really care. But you know what I like? I just like seeing good people do well. I love what I do. I love seeing good people do well. I literally shed tears when a client steps on stage and places well. And with, the, the, with one exception, and I'm not saying this to beat my chest or, or make some, you know, uh, you know, profess something to try to get clients or anything. I'm, I'm doing just fine. But with one exception, I've never had a client not make the top three, ever. And I'm super proud of that. And the other thing I'm super proud of is the overwhelming majority of the people I train are normal average people who've started competing late in life, you know, drug free, you know, and just have put in the work and the discipline and done everything required of them and make a massive, massive change. That will make you fucking emotional. I just like seeing good people do well. So eight weeks out, 
what should you do? Well, if you were my client, I would say this or nothing. And if it's nothing, that means, dude, you're killing it. I know you're bored. I know you're fucking hungry. I know you would kill for a rice cake right now. But stay the course. You've almost got this. It's almost over. And when we get into that peak week or maybe two weeks out, when we start that little progressive carb load that you know that it's on the freaking horizon, you can see the finish line and very, very soon you're going to do something that most people will never, ever, ever do. And you will be part of a very unique and badass community of people. And most of the people that you stumble across, stumble across in daily life, it's going to be extremely rare to run across one that's done the same damn thing. So applaud yourself already. It doesn't have to be dynamic. Prep is subtle. It's a caloric deficit, high protein, minor adjustments here, minor adjustments there. Is your training intense? No, not intense to you, intense to me. Let's have that discussion. Are you training to failure? Are you giving it super high intensity? When I put a hundred rep rest pause set to finish your workout after you're already fucking blasted. Do you get through it or do you skip it and check it off and say you did it? Don't be one of those people that, uh, you know, if, if, if nobody's looking, then it doesn't matter. Don't be one of those people that grabs a handful of M&Ms and if nobody saw you eat them, then the calories don't count. You know, there are people that justify this shit. The brain works so weird when you're depleted. And one final thing on this is I have a client right now who's very, very close to competing and she looks so good. She looks so badass. I mean, her separation in her arms, she's got this wicked freaking back, tight midsection. She's starting to look grainy. I mean, she looks fucking phenomenal. And it's just once a week, I get a message from her saying, I look like shit. There's no way. There's no way I'm going to be ready. And then I have to talk her off the ledge and remind her that, and this is important, Bodybuilding, not just competitive bodybuilding, all bodybuilding, when you're getting close to that goal date, whether it's to be a stand on stage or get in front of the camera or walk into the family reunion or the class reunion or whatever, it's smoke and mirrors. How you look on your iPhone camera standing in your laundry room on a Friday morning, stark white, just rolled out of bed, is not how it's going to look when you've got a deep tan the right oil on you. You've done the carb up. You're under beautiful, you know, perfect lights with a good, good photography. You know, all these things, it completely changes it. I can't tell you how many clients, even my own daughter, you know, says two weeks out, there's no way I cannot compete with these people. I do not look like somebody who can compete on stage. And I said, trust me, you look amazing. You're going to do amazing. What happened? She won her first fucking show crushed it because she knew all the X factors. She understood that it's more than just the diet. It's more than just the training. It's about presentation. It's about the X factors. It's about the smoke and mirrors. It's about how to show that physique properly. I've seen some amazing bodybuilders completely blow it because they didn't put the final little X factors into place at the very end that could have made or break them or broke them. So remember, changes, if you have a coach, trust the coach. 
if that coach has brought you this far, trust them. They know what the fuck they're doing. It doesn't have to be me. There's some great coaches out there. There's some shitty coaches out there. But once you attach your horse to that wagon, ride it out, trust the process, ask lots of questions, put in the work, be prepared to suffer. And you'll get there and you'll be very, very proud. And there's nothing like the feeling of knowing that you're about to walk on stage or walk in front of that camera or walk into that, you know, high school reunion, knowing I never fucking skipped a beat. I did it all. I left it all out there. I left nothing behind. I ate every fucking meal. I did every damn workout. I never skipped a session of cardio. I nailed my damn macros. I went to bed early. I got my eight, nine hours of sleep. I followed my recovery. I took every one of the 437 different freaking animal packs I was supposed to take every day. I did the work. I drank the gallon of water. It sucks at the time, but hey, princess, this is a tough sport. It's lonely and it's difficult. But once you get through it, like any other huge endeavor, when you cross that finish line and you stand there knowing you left it all there, you're going to be so proud of yourself and it's going to leave a lasting impression that's going to be imprinted on your soul for the rest of your life. No one can ever take that away from you. How's that for question one? <laughs> it took, took us 30 minutes. I have a feeling we're not going to get through all these questions. Let's move on. Damn, I'm already tired. You guys are wearing me out. Um, questions two and three, they work together. The question two is, if the goal is to build muscle while minimizing fat gain, how much of a surplus is necessary to achieve this? And then the very next question that I copied and pasted onto this paper without even really reading them was, what would the difference of a 100 calorie surplus be versus a 500 calorie surplus? Okay. When you're trying to put on mass, you need to be in a caloric surplus. It doesn't have to be massive. Some people can take far more and some people can need to take less. A lot of this has to do with genetics. It has to do with training intensity, how many years you've been training. But to make it sort of a, a blanket answer, three to 500 has been pretty much my golden rule for just about everybody. Now I've worked with some guys who were genetic freaks that I had to pump an extra thousand damn calories into them to get them to really maximize their growth potential. They didn't put on a ton of extra body fat. So we just kept playing with the numbers until we found that sweet spot. A hundred calories. That's tricky because even if you're tracking everything, you know that no system of tracking is perfect. You're going to be off you know by a, a couple of handful of calories in either direction, you're gonna be off on your grams. It's gonna be very, very difficult to pinpoint exactly 100 calories over. 100 calories is nothing. And it's gonna be nearly impossible for anybody to truly properly track 100 calories over. So I like the three to 500 for just about nearly anyone coming out of the gate and then kind of grow into that diet and then make any adjustments as we need it down the road. Um, so, you know, again, this has a lot to do with genetics. Are you the type of person that builds muscle easy or are you, the or are you a hard gainer? So, you know, the three to 500 is always the best place to begin. And if, you know, a hundred calories over, you're playing with, you know, the, the, um, the tracking 
you know, not being accurate enough to be absolutely certain that you've achieved that 100 calories over. So three to 500 is definitely my golden rule. And then like anything else, you, you know, track it, you monitor it, and then you make adjustments, you know, four to six weeks later, see how it's going and then make adjustments as needed. Okay, uh, next question. Do you find any benefit to changing up your approach to workout programming, for instance, doing two to three months of push-pull legs, and then two to three months of back, chest, biceps, triceps, legs, etc.? I do not. I have no problem if you do some push-pull legs thing, okay? What I do is what I, you know, what I do recently, some of these people who think they know better, um, call it a bro split, meaning, you know, you do back on this day, you do arms on this day, you do legs on this day and so forth. I call it a pro split. I did not make that up. I stole that from Fuad Abiyad who, you know, brilliantly coined that phrase. And he's right because he's an IFBB pro and a super famous bodybuilder and the host of one of the greatest bodybuilding podcasts out there on the market right now. And I agree with that sentiment because of intensity and recovery. For myself, if I do push, pull legs, push, pull legs, you know, in a week, I have found that to the level that I like to train, the intensity that I put forth in every workout, I find that there's a really good chance that I'm not fully recovered by the time I hit those muscle groups again. And the thing about it is, is you don't have to worry about losing muscle in the short term. It's not going anywhere, provided you're taking in enough calories and nutrients and protein. In other words, here's my example. Right now, and for the majority of my prep, I'm doing legs one day a week. Well, I'm doing every body part one day a week for the most part. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm doing legs one day a week. Today is leg day. I do legs generally on Wednesday right now. I know that if I give it everything I have, which I intend to, that it's going to take perhaps 48, perhaps 72 hours to recover. There have been times where I've been beyond 72 hours and I still feel it. I have some onset muscle soreness. That means it's not fully recovered and then given an opportunity to overcompensate. See, there, there's a point where you do recover. You sort of get back to level ground after digging the hole. Then when you get back to level ground, you got to pack some dirt on top of it. That is new growth. That's the defense mechanism. It's your body's defense mechanism. If you're tearing down the muscle, your body sends a message to the brain saying, I'm not sure why this guy just did this to these legs, but in the event he's ever going to do it again, which I will a week later, we'd better pack on a little extra muscle to make him a little stronger and add a little bit of extra lean tissue in the event that he ever does this horse shit again. So you need to not only compensate and recover from the activity, but then you need to overcompensate. So I truly believe that, and I don't think there's ever gonna be anything that's gonna change my mind on that. And conversely, if I do legs on Wednesday, there is zero chance, unless I starve myself, of losing any lean mass between Wednesday this week and Wednesday next week. So if I destroy my legs today, it's going to do nothing but compensate, overcompensate, and sit there and wait for me to fuck them up again. So get that out of your head. And you know, this is another reason why I'm not a big fan of tons and tons of fasting. We now have scientific studies that have proven that people that nourish themselves frequently with protein, especially at every meal, 
tend to save more lean tissue than people who fast often. Now, fasting is great. If you're just gen pop, normal dude, normal chick, just trying to lose weight and you know, food is a trigger in any form, any mechanism and fasting works for you to get lean, great. I don't give a shit. You do what you do. I am not a zealot. I'm not here to tell you the, my way or the highway. But in terms of your best damn chance of building and preserving all the damn muscle you can, you're better off at flooding your body with amino acids and calories every few hours. There's a reason the best physique competitors on earth have been doing this since the 1970s. Don't fix that shit if it's not broken. Therein lies my hybrid old school bodybuilding techniques combined with lower carb primal ketogenic nutrition to find that perfect marriage of the two so you can gain and preserve and still shred that shit out and not have any of the detrimental side effects that can happen to some with an overabundance of carbohydrate in the body. Does that make sense? So I like a pro split. If the push pull legs works for you, great. But if you're doing a push pull or push pull legs, push pull legs, whatever, and you feel like it's not quite what you intended, give a pro split a try. I don't see any difference in my physique. In, in other words, one, you know, an improvement by changing it up. There have been times, there will be times throughout my prep where maybe I'll do a push pull or not push pull, but I'll do maybe back on, uh, like right now we're doing back on Monday. We're doing chest and shoulders on Tuesday, legs on Wednesday, arms on Thursday, and then push pull on Friday. So technically we're getting a little more back and a little bit more chest and triceps, uh, on, and of course shoulders are always involved. Um, on Friday, but we try to choose movements that are separate from the ones that we previously did. Like Monday back day may be more of a pull down kind of a day where the Friday we might add a little bit more rowing or maybe we change the rep schemes or maybe it's more, you know, superset based or whatever. So we kind of keep it shooken up. But, you know, for me, I never have a problem recovering uh, upper body groups they recover very, very quickly where it takes a lot longer for my legs recover because it's such a large body part. It's over 60% of your muscularity. So I like the pro split and I generally don't change from that. So there you go. Uh, next question. At what point do you need to wear a belt for lifting? Listen, I hate this shit. I don't hate belts. <laughs> don't get me wrong. You know what I fucking hate? I fucking hate you wear a belt, let's say, when you're doing some heavy back squats and you put it on Instagram and then 13 dumbass keyboard warriors sitting in their mom's basement, eating a freaking hot pocket that looks like they've never walked into a gym in their life or saying, what are you wearing that belt for? You need a belt. Blah, 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 blah. Hey, Skippy, put down the hot pocket and back slowly away from it. Turn off the fucking computer and kill yourself. Okay. If wearing a belt makes you feel more stable, if it helps your back doing heavy squats, wear a belt. When I was doing heavy back squats, I don't really do them anymore. I switched to a belt squat, which we just got. I'm stoked about that. Look for uh, 
look for some uh, videos of that on Instagram coming up in a day or two. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you like wearing a belt and it helps you wear the freaking belt, there are still top pros and top amateurs out there who wear a belt when they deadlift, when they squat and other things. All right. I like wearing a belt when I go super heavy on back squats. I like wearing a belt if I go very heavy on a deadlift or a rack pull. It makes me feel more stable. And I have specifically noticed less lower back discomfort when I wear the belt. Now, some idiot is going to put in the comments, well, if you strengthened your core, but shut up. I do work my core, okay? I'm also old and I beat the piss out of my body for the last 30 years. And if strapping on a little belt makes my back feel better, it's none of your damn business butt out go away so wear a belt when you feel like you need to wear the belt i don't care just don't wear it when you're doing curls you look like a moron all right next i am currently trying to cut weight as i add in carbs for energy before workouts i find myself gaining my weight is stagnant what should i be doing to hit my cut weight listen if you're taking in 20 30 grams of carbs before an intense strength training session and that's causing you to add weight, you're either not in a caloric deficit or your workouts suck, okay? I'm not trying to be mean, okay? I'm just trying to really drive a point home and help you. Trust me, if I take in 20 grams of carbs, like a couple of rice cakes or some cyclic dextrin or you know, serving a cream of rice, whatever, and then I go train, that shit better be completely absorbed in my system and used as a usable fuel source by the time I'm done. If not, then I was a damn pussy in the gym. I didn't give it everything I had. That shit should be long gone, either at the conclusion of your workout or shortly after as your body is chewing through those nutrients. So you're either not in a caloric deficit or you're not training intensely or you're so on the edge of, of deficit and maintenance if 20 grams, 30 grams of carbs are making a difference, then you're right on the cusp or over that maintenance point, right? You've just calculated your macros wrong. No way in fucking hell you should be gaining weight on 20 grams of carbs before a workout. That is not a thing unless you've got everything completely out of whack. So make just some adjustments on your macros and up that intensity. Ask any of my clients. There's a reason why I put in high intensity techniques somewhere in just about every workout. They suck, they blow, people look at them are like shit, but then they do them and they get it. All right? So that'd be that. Uh, injury modifications. No one wants to hear rest whatever body part for six weeks. I attempt to type this question with a TINS unit firing away on my left elbow and my right hand in ice. Holy shit. With ugly knuckles from doing push-ups on them. Well, I find that part sexy. While feeling guilt about taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen, I really don't have a question, but looking for guidance and work around for stupid, annoying injuries like suicide grips help. I'm fortunate to not have dropped any heavy things on my head. Thank God. Since that would suck. Yes, it would. I guess my question is, how do you not lose progress while something goes haywire? If you're not deep into a prep and have a show on the horizon, rest rest. Here's a good example. Okay. Now it's, maybe it's not a good example, but I was listening to an interview with current Mr. current two time, Mr. Olympia, big Ramey. They call him big Ramey because he's got an Egyptian name that nobody can pronounce. 
And his coach was saying that, you know, you know, Big Ramey, who just is now a two-time Mr. Olympia, just won the Mr. Olympia a week ago for the second time. He was telling the story about how he has Big Ramey literally take about three to four months off and do absolutely nothing. Not lifting anything, not really dieting, just not doing anything stupid to really let that body recover and heal and prepare for the upcoming battle of full-on Olympia contest prep. Now, I know this is a bad example because this guy is a genetic super freak. He's juiced to the damn gills. He's sauced out of his mind. I get it, okay? But the same thing does apply. I, this is, this is a, I'm gonna go ahead and tell this story. I've not told this story. When I went through my complete shit show train wreck of my nationals competition back in July, as I was backstage, I've never really had a significant injury. I was backstage warming up and I was doing some front deltoid raises with a band and I felt a little bit of a pop. And it was nothing heavy, for God's sake, nothing at all. And my shoulder, you know, I didn't think of it at the time, but the next day I noticed, damn, my shoulder hurts. And I had trouble lifting it like in, the, like in the form of an upright row, that's sort of a position, or lifting you know, like a, what you would do for a front raise. And that shit hurt like hell. And then when I tried to do my first shoulder workout, um, when I got back into the gym, it really hurt like hell. So yesterday, we did chest and shoulders. And yesterday, this is October, is the first time I've done any real specific shoulder work since July, and it was only a lateral raise. I know I'm getting indirect stimulation from the chest work that I do, and that's fine for right now. I let that shit heal. As much as I love working shoulders and doing heavy presses and all the different uh, you know, medial deltoid movements and lateral and front deltoid movements and all the different shit, I haven't done any of it since before July. You gotta let the shit heal. So if you've got a body part that is severely injured and hurts like shit, stop training that body part. Take some time off or go through a couple of weeks of very light deload. Skip the body part that hurts. If, as long as you're not eating like an idiot, you're not gonna come out of that weak. You're only gonna come out of it recovered and better. So that would be my advice. As much as it sucks, rest it, heal it, walk away from it. Okay, question. What is the best percentage of one rep max to use when working out? All of it. I don't... I'm not a big one rep max guy. I can't tell you the last time I walked into the gym and said, I'm gonna find out what my one rep max is on the bench press today. There are people that talk like that. I haven't done that since the 90s, because I don't fucking care. I don't care. Uh, if I'm out in public, and this happens a lot, because you know you try to be the freak in the room, and somebody says, damn dude, you're jacked, how much you bench? And I'll say, I don't know. Depends on the workout, depends on the workout order, depends on the series of movements that I'm doing, the order of movements, the type of training I'm doing at the time. I don't know. Uh, once last year in prep, I did 335 for a couple. I don't know if that's my max. Seemed like a lot, <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't care. This is about hypertrophy training. It's about building muscle. I'm not a power lifter. I don't give two shits what I lift. I'm gonna lift safely under control to the point of momentary concentric muscular failure. And then from time to time, I will add in a high intensity technique like forced reps, negatives, rest pause, cluster sets, and all these things to take it even further and beyond to really 
tear down that muscle and prepare for severe overcompensation. I don't give two shits about one rep max percentages. In my mind, like let's say I'm doing four sets. Um, I usually, as a general rule, always go to failure on the last set. That's just a general rule. So I may, in what in my mind, and it may not be completely accurate, think, okay, uh, uh, for the feeder sets, sets one, two, and three, working up to that fourth set to failure, I'm going to work at about 80 to 85%. The first set may be 70%, just to make sure the muscles are warm, the joints are lubricated and moving well. I'm no spring chicken. And uh, then I'll move to the next set, bump it up a couple of plates, what I perceive to be about 80%. Then I may go to what I perceive to be about 85%. And then I get my shit together, I get my head right, and I get prepared to that fourth set of all-out momentary concentric muscular failure. And then if it's on the menu that day, my workout partners are prepared to take it beyond with whatever high-intensity technique we have at the time. So that's the way I work that. Okay, is it okay to lift in a fasted state, just making sure to get a post-shake or a meal in within 30 minutes after? I'm gonna echo this again for you in the back. And if you just haven't heard me say this because this is your first podcast, totally cool, I get it. Welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Thank you for your support. But if you've been around a while, you've probably heard me mention that Thankfully, what we've believed or what I have believed for many years has been shown to be proven in the research. And uh, I have, I think now, at least three peer-reviewed studies, um, two of them, um, courtesy of uh, Lane Norton. Thank, thank you, uh, Lane, at BioLane is his Instagram, uh, where uh, finally... We've got some legitimate uh, data that shows that training fasted or those who do a lot of intermittent fasting or fasting uh, will almost as a rule lose more lean body mass than those who engage in frequent feeding of nutrients uh, throughout the day. We now have the research. I know this for a fact with myself. There is a reason I eat every two to three hours. It's not because it's fun or sexy or cool. Um, There are times where I absolutely don't want that meal three hours later, but I eat it anyway. Sometimes it's smaller if I'm just not hungry at all, but there's going to be something there. And I'm going to push to, to reach my macros goal for the day because I know that the preservation of lean mass is paramount for what I am trying to accomplish now because I am still competing. So I'm going to say it again. Now, people will say, well, I wake up at four. If you're one of these people that have the... You know, the drive and the ambition to get your roll your ass out of bed at four. I get up at three thirty or four every day, but it's coming to train clients. So my ass is standing there with a hoodie on, drinking a cup of coffee, you know, (laughs) and watching somebody else suffer. Uh, I would have a very hard time doing that. But if I were to get up and train early, I would do whatever it took to allow myself to get in some pre-workout nutrition. Uh, For me, probably, I wouldn't have time to eat, nor would I really desire to eat a bunch of solid food that early, right before I train. So I would probably concoct my own pre-workout shake, probably with some cyclic dextrin, some whey protein, 
uh, perhaps even a little MCT, C8 MCT oil, something to that nature. Uh, that's what I would do. And I would down that drink on the way to the gym uh, or down it at home and then drive to the gym. If your gym is at your home, then drink it, check your emails, get motivated, you know, watch your favorite bodybuilder train on YouTube and get, get you know, fired up, whatever, and then, uh, then go hit it. And then, you know, roughly 30 minutes after you're done training, down that, uh, that protein shake that you need, the, the amount of grams that you need based on your weight. Um, what I do now is I take, uh, immediately after my weight training session, I take the EAA nitro from animal nutrition. And then about 30 minutes later, I'll drink 50 grams of whey protein. And then two or so hours later, I'm back to real food again and just keep, you know, putting those nutrients in my body, keep my muscles saturated with amino acids. So that's the way I do it. So I would highly recommend you try that protocol. Uh, see, been some discussion here about, Post-workout carbs recently, do you ever take them? If so, when? Only during a gain phase or while cutting? And what types of carbs are best suited for post-workout? Um, I will do some, now, you know, I'll, I love these epiphany moments where I will come in and tell people, hey, I have changed my stance on this. Because a lot of coaches out there or people who are trying to gain influence on YouTube or Instagram or whatever, they are never going to admit they have a change in ideology. Because for some reason, that makes, they, they think it makes them look like they, they don't know enough. That's horse shit. There was quite a long period of time where I did not think there was any need for post-workout carbs. I have changed my stance on that to a degree. A... I think sometimes after a very, very big workout, like on leg day or like my back day, which are by far the most brutal days that I have, um, there are times where I can just tell that I need to replenish my glycogen and bring it back up to, you know, the top of the glass without any spilling over. And uh, so I will take in a small amount of uh, carbohydrate, simple carbohydrate, or, or excuse me, fast absorbing carbohydrate uh, right afterwards, but it's only a small amount. And it may only be like 20 grams. Um, you know, I'm 230 pounds right now. So I may have a little bit pre-workout, crush the workout, and then I'll take my EAAs and then I will have perhaps, you know, a couple of plain rice cakes and 50 grams of whey. It's not a lot but I want to make sure that I've re, you know, replenished and topped off those glycogen stores after a brutal workout. And then also, because you know you want that protein to do its job, the other thing that we talk about a lot is carbohydrate is muscle sparing or protein sparing, meaning when you have that little bit of carbohydrate in you around your workouts, it allows the protein that you consume to do its job and not have any of those grams borrowed to convert to glucose in the body because your body is finding it needs some from somewhere and it can't find it. So again, there's another great reason why a little bit of carbs around your workouts is a phenomenal strategy. So yes, I do find myself, especially in a gain phase, taking a little bit post-workout after big body part days. So hope that helps. And you know, your mileage may vary. It works great for me. It's worked great for others. Some people it's not their thing. It's one of those things that you just got to try. Next up, and we almost got through these things. Uh, I know you've talked a lot about it before, but I want to dive deeper into your bulk breakdown. 
your macros training strategy, bumps on the road, and how you're feeling throughout the bulk. Let's get emotional. Well, I don't know how emotional I can get about a mass gain phase. I get far more emotional during a cut. There are days when I'm deep into a cut and suffering where I am acting like a four-year-old sniveling little girl, uh, but not in a gain phase. And I do hate the word bulk. It almost implies fat, doesn't it? Like bulk, you know? Dirty bulk, it just, anyway, it's semantics. Don't worry about it, call it what you like. But um, my bulk breakdown, simple. Now remember, the whole theme of this is consistency, repetition. A phrase that I use all the time, repetition is the mother of skill. You do something over and over and over again and you become great at it, right? So I eat pretty much the same types of foods at the same times every day every day of the week, and then I make shifts. Uh, I'll make a shift at 24 weeks out, at 16 weeks out, at 12 weeks out, at eight weeks out, at six weeks out, peak week, and so on. But I stay very consistent and very repetitive because repetition is the mother of skill and it keeps you focused and it keeps you honest. And any break away from the repetition and that consistency tends to always be more of a detrimental thing or, you know, or a, a breaker of progress than, than enhancing your progress. So I, again, I will go for myself a little over 500 calories uh, into a caloric surplus. I would take in considerably more fats. So I'm having whole legs. I'm having, you know, fattier red meat, uh, whatever cuts of chicken that I want. And I still do a lot of chicken breasts just because oddly I like it. So like uh, I will oftentimes mix like for around breakfast time, I, I still love whole eggs. So there are times where I'll do literally like six or seven whole eggs and that's my breakfast. Or sometimes I'll do uh, like three or four whole eggs with like four ounces of, you know, ground beef. Sometimes I'll do that same four whole eggs and then I'll cut up some chicken breast in it and mix that all together just because it gives some, you know, uh, some more, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, <laughs> I have again. It 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 texture. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking for is texture. Uh, by having the chicken or the red meat in with the eggs, it changes the texture and gives you something different to chew. So I like that that little change up. But uh, so it you know the same formula applies. I'm in a caloric surplus. I'm eating uh, high protein, uh, moderate but higher fat, and I'm only taking in carbs around my workouts. And I'm still doing one refeed day per week, but my refeed macros are far greater in a gain phase than they are in a deep cut. So it's still simple, it's repetitive, and it's nothing fancy. Because again, the, the protocol itself, reminder kids, the protocol itself is not complicated. It's the follow through. I can say to anybody, eat this many calories, divide it up into these macros, do these workouts, do this cardio for this amount of time and get this many hours of sleep. Go. How many people will fall short from doing those things? Now, is what I said super complicated? I didn't say build a working life-size replica of the Death Star with Legos. I said, eat these foods every three to four hours, train these body parts on these days with these exercises, do this cardio for this amount of time at this heart rate and get eight hours sleep a night. Go. 95% of the people that I give this to will fall short in some way or another. I fall short from time to time. 
It's how far you fall short is the key here. So if you're on that shit 90%, you're going to be a fucking badass. The people that follow what I just said 90% and do the work, they're the ones that eat nails and crap thunder. You follow up 50%, you're going to get 50% of what you were looking for. And trust me, if you have a physique goal and you only get to 50% of that physique goal that you have in your head, you're not going to be happy. The sad thing is you're probably going to, you're probably going to blame me. Oh, my coach sucked. <laughs> okay, <laughs> whatever. Once again, you know, it is what it is. But um, you got to find that repetition. You have to find that consistency. Find a plan that works. Stick to the plan. Stay off the fucking internet. Stop listening to everybody around you because when you get into that rut and you're suffering and you're working hard, and especially when you get depleted, you start questioning yourself and then you let those outside influences in, you change things and then you fuck it all up. Hmm. Where are we at? When's your wife going to be a guest speaker? Who the hell knows that woman? I've asked her several times. Something about, you know, I'm homeschooling our daughter, I'm watching our grandson, I'm tending full-time to, you know, um, remodeling a house and the garden and blah, blah, blah. Whatever. <laughs> I would love to have her on because, you know what's cool is when you're not a competitive bodybuilder. And my wife, her sole function in life is just to take care of other people. She's one of those people. She's a caretaker. She will sacrifice herself all day long to give to others. That can be good and bad. I often tell her, listen, do more for yourself and you'll get even better at doing for others. That never seems to register with her. But anyway, I, I would love to have her on and just get that perspective of her support for you people. Because when I finally do, you're going to find out that it's not all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. There are times where she's like, I'm done with that fucking asshole. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then I don't see her for 24 hours because she needs to go clear her damn head from all my bullshit. But then she's always right back there supporting me and big, being my biggest cheerleader. So there's, there's dark times. There's, there's beautiful times and I wouldn't change any of it. And, uh, I do need to get her on here. So her Instagram, she's going to shoot me for this is at Nancy a Goodwin on Instagram. So request to follow her and then message her and tell her she needs to be on the podcast. Just blow that inbox up. I don't know if her profile's on public or not. If it's on public, then she's in big trouble. But if all of a sudden, if you guys, if a hundred of you people listening, and I know you're out there because we've had almost 50,000 downloads. Um, if you just blow up her inbox, then I'll explain why. And maybe we can get her to come on. Uh, let's see how often to train legs. If it's a lagging body part. Also, how much pre-workout salt should I have to get a good pump at the gym? Um, once again, I don't believe it's about volume for legs. I believe it's about intensity for legs. Now I do have some women, especially that I train that, you know, maybe, you know, not very many weeks out from a physique competition where we may add some additional legs and glutes in through the week. Uh, the aforementioned client that I have that is roughly a, a month out that says she looks like crap and she looks like she's carved out of wood, you know her, um, I have her doing two leg days now with some emphasis on some additional glute work. Uh, even though there's no magic formula to glutes, the glutes still develop best through squats and presses and lunges and all that shit. So I will 
occasionally add in that second day. But if you take it any beyond that, and if you're training for two hours in the gym doing just legs, you're definitely overtraining them bitches and probably not going to get the look that you want. And you might just come in looking worn out, washed out and stringy. So just be careful about the volume, worry more about the intensity. Uh, I have a lot of women who have placed top three, even won their class. And the majority of their prep was only doing one super hard leg workout a week. So, uh, you know, try two days a week and space them out the best you can. Uh, but again, keep the volume low and the intensity high. So I'd rather see you go super hard for 30 minutes, heavyweight to failure than I would want you in there just screwing around high rep, dilly dallying around, prancing around the gym for an hour and a half. So, okay. Last question, because we're right at an hour. If I have a coach that comments that my muscularity has improved and I ask a question as to where do they see improvements, I get a general answer of your overall muscularity has improved. When I ask, where do I see the changes? Uh, when I ask, where do they see the changes? Should I be looking for another coach? Okay. I see what he's saying here. So he has a coach and I, I didn't put the, the name of the person, so it may be a woman, male or a female. Let's just go ahead and assume it's a male uh, or whatever. Um, he, the coach comments to the client, hey, your overall muscularity has improved, man. Client says, cool, where do you see the best improvements? Coach replies, oh, you know, I'm not really sure, just overall, dude, you know, let's not get caught up in the details, man, I'm an expert. If you're getting that kind of horseshit from a coach, now again, I'm I'm I hate it when people flip flop coaches. There's like their coach of the month, you know. That's that I hate that shit. You know, get your shit together. Hire a coach if you trust them to begin with, and carry it through. And so before you fire the coach, press him or her. Listen, this is about my physique. This is why I'm paying you. If you're any kind of an expert at all. You can tell me where and why you're seeing the improvements in my muscularity. To me, that's super freaking easy. I, I do that on just random photo updates that my clients send me. I'll, I'll look at the photo and say, oh, wow, look at those delts popping out. I'm seeing some nice you know, addition on your, on your uh, medial delts or your lateral delts. Your triceps are really coming in. Oh, you've got some great back detail. I like how your upper lats are filling out or look at the quad sweep that, that you've achieved. It's definitely greater from when you started. Notice this, notice that. Look at the separation on your hamstrings or look at the hamstring glute tie-in. It's much tighter than it was. Your glute circumference is definitely growing. You know, these kind of things. It's not hard to see. If you understand the body as a coach, which I've been looking at bodies for 30 years and evaluating them as a fan and a coach, you'd better be able to specifically, distinctly explain where and why and what else needs to come out or change or develop or whatever. And everybody's gonna have strong body parts and weak body parts. Some just aren't ever gonna come in the exact way that you wanted it, that's just where you're at. And then we get through this season and then we try to focus on that body part next season. If you're 30 days out, you're not going to put on any muscle in 30 days of a cut. You can only hope to maintain it. So at that point, it's just cutting and shredding. 
So your coach better know how to lean your ass out and you better know how to fucking suffer. Because in the last 30 days, especially the last two weeks, you're gonna go through a hard damn depletion because that's just what it takes unless you're just a genetic outlier super freak. So it's not about muscle in the last few days. So, but back to the original question, any coach should be able to tell you how my workout partners could tell you if, if they looked at your picture from two months ago and looked at your pictures from now, they hear this shit from me the whole time we're training. So I'm not saying fire your coach, you know, but I am saying, Jesus, he, he or she should definitely specifically be able to tell you where and why. Okay. All right. I think I've taken up enough of your time today. This was, uh, this was fun. I really enjoyed this. I, ha I had a little extra time this morning in my day. And now the next thing I need to do is eat and then get ready for leg day. I'm really excited because I just bought a new belt squat machine and I'm really excited about that. Uh, like I said, I'm going to try to get some video of us hammering out some squats in the belt squat today. So if you're not familiar with the belt squat, the belt squat is, uh, it'll, it'll be on my Instagram at the real Rob Goodwin. Um, belt squats were really popular back in the nineties. And I tell a great story. Well, I say it's great. It was the worst set of my life. I think I almost died. A part of me died that day. Um, where I went to coach legendary coach and mentor John Perillo's camp in Cincinnati, Ohio, back in the early nineties. And when we got there and I've told this story, but let me repeat myself just quickly, just the 10 cent version. We get to the death camp as I like to call it. And I know I'm about to train with Perillo and his crew for a weekend. And I know I'm about to get my ass beat down severely because Perillo is a high intensity guy, just like me. Where do you think I get this shit? I'm into John, you know, uh, uh, John Perillo was one of my mentors. Dorian Yates was my favorite bodybuilder, Mike Mentzer, you know, intensity, 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 you know? So I've learned, uh, from some of the greatest. So coach Perillo gets us all in there. Those of you, those of us who were fortunate enough to spend our, I think it was like five or 600 bucks to attend the weekend worth every damn penny, by the way. And uh, we are told that we must complete 100 reps on a belt squat. Now, a belt squat, you have a harness around your waist that is attached to basically a lever that you add weight to. So there's no pressure on your back and there's no pressure on your shoulders. So you can squat some heavy ass weight without worrying about any low back distress, no shoulder mobility distress, or any massive weight resting on your back. It's all strapped around your waist comfortably for the most part. And John Perillo's old school belt squat, you weren't attached to a machine that had the weight on it. You literally got on a tall platform, uh, held onto a handle that slid up and down a pole with ball bearings, and you strapped the weight around between your legs attached to a belt, sort of like a dip belt, like where you put the belt around your waist and you attach a plate to it and you do parallel dips for triceps. So he determines the weight based basically on how you look, how much you weigh and all this kind of shit. So fucker puts 400 pounds on me and I was probably 230 at the time and I'm in my twenties. So I'm, you know, I think I'm tough 
And he says, you're going to do 100 reps and basically makes the announcement that if you don't do the 100 reps, you're out. You go the fuck home. I keep your 600 bucks. Have a great day. Leave. So I'm like, great. So I get on the damn thing and I start the 400 pounds. The first damn rep, I thought I was going to puke. I mean, it was that's a lot of fucking weight. So I get through a handful at, at the 400 about to die. And, you know, he has mercy and he strips a plate. We had 400 pound, four 100 pound plates. He's using 100 pound plates. So you don't have so many damn plates strapped between your damn legs. So he strips a plate. I got 300 pounds. I do another big handful of reps. um, And then he strips it down to 200 pounds. Well, it's still sucking ass, okay? Because I'm already exhausted. My legs are already shot and throbbing and screaming. And I keep repping out and I'm going and I'm dying somewhere around 70 reps, I think I blacked out because I don't remember 70 to 90. I don't remember any of it. I think I fucking blacked out. And when I came back to consciousness, I now have 100 pounds between my legs and I've got two big ass bodybuilders, one under my right arm and one under my left arm, force repping my big ass through the last 10 reps. And I'm fucking dying, okay? We get to 100 He says, you did it. He unhooks the belt that falls down between the platform. And I literally fall off like a fallen fucking oak tree. Hit the floor where I laid in the fetal position for roughly 40 minutes while everybody else did their sets, which I don't remember any of them because I was on the floor in the fetal position dying. That's how the whole damn thing started. So (laughs) that was my first experience with a belt squat. And uh, so I have a belt squat here now, and I'm stoked about it. And I'd been using belt squats for years back in the 90s at various different gyms. And uh, so I'm really, really excited to have one here. So we're going to crush some legs today, and I'll try to get some video up on Instagram. And uh, I do the the TikTok thing, too. The link's in the uh, link is on my uh, link tree on my website. So check that out. Anyway, I've taken enough of your time. So I appreciate the support um we'll be back again hopefully in a week or two and uh if you need coaching or advice or help comments all the links and contact information is on my website robgoodwin.com please share this podcast with others download it and if you're on itunes a positive review if i've earned it goes a long, long way. And I would truly, truly appreciate that. So until next time, you know, the drill, train hard, diet harder, and have a great day. Peace.